We're going to uh, get into the word early so that we can worship at the end. So I want to invite you to turn to a psalm that takes us to the throne room of God. And this is, this is Psalm 110, verses 1 through 7. And I want to talk about the one leader, the one leader out there who does not disappoint. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but as I've done a lot of reading uh, over the past, I don't know, year or two years, one of the things I've noticed, I'm sure you've noticed, is that leadership is very, very controversial. It's very controversial. And there are a lot of leadership failures, spectacular leadership failures, that we, we've seen in our culture. Whenever you turn on the TV or click on to an internet news site, you hear about leaders having major problems. For instance, Les Moonves, the former president of CBS, has had a long pattern of moral failures. How much money has that cost CBS? $100 million. $100 million. That, that's, that's a leadership failure. I read an interesting book recently, or an, or an article about a book called Presidencies Derailed. He talks about how brutally difficult it is these days to be a university president. He said university presidents manage all sorts of political correctness and all sorts of political infighting. And being a university president is not so much about leading an academic institution as it is about managing conflicting expectations. Lots of leadership failures uh, among the academic institutions of our day. And of course, politics. Wow, we've seen a lot of leadership struggles and failures in politics. Doesn't matter which side you're on, Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, it seems like it's hard to make things happen in Washington, D.C. Good leaders are few and far between. Magazine, Forbes magazine recently wrote an article called Where Have All the Leaders Gone? And he was writing a great article asking where are the really good leaders in our world these days. So he asked the question, looking at all the world leaders from all time, how does Jesus stack up? Like, how would Jesus stack up among all the world leaders of all time? Well, if you go onto the internet and you look at ranker.com, ranker names Jesus at number 18. <laughs> now, there are a lot of other sites that rank Jesus, you know, at, in the bottom 50 of the top 100. Uh, I, I saw one that ranked him as number six, but Ranker ranks Napoleon as number six. I mean, I mean you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. So, so yet, yet everybody's got an opinion about what kind of leader Jesus was. But if you ask the question, is there an authoritative source that ranks Jesus as a leader? Is, is there something like that out there? The answer to that, of course, is yes. And that source is Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most oft-quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. And Psalm 110 is the authoritative source for the New Testament-inspired writers to describe the kind of leader that Jesus really was. And I, I, I love it that so many of these authors will quote Psalm 110. You want to know how Jesus is as a leader? Go back to Psalm 110 and verse 1. That's the authoritative source. And Psalm 110 
talks about Jesus as the greatest leader there ever, there ever was. So let's just start by reading it. I know that font is a little bit small, but let me, let me just read this. And I, I want you to listen to the majestic beauty of this verse. That child in the manger is identified in glory with these words. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule among your enemies. When you go to war, your people will serve you willingly. You are arrayed in holy garments, and your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. Remember, this is a child in the manger. This is the words about him in glory. The Lord has taken an oath, and this is God the Father. The Lord God the Father has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You, Jesus, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you. He will strike down many kings when his anger erupts. He will punish the nations and fill their land with corpses. He will shatter heads over the whole earth. But he himself, again talking about Jesus, will be refreshed from the brooks along the way. He will be victorious. Now my aim this morning is just primarily for you to see Jesus in all of his, all of his glory, all of his majesty. We'll have some applications at the end, but primarily I just want you to savor the greatness of Jesus Christ. So we're going to begin with Psalm 110, verse 1, with Jesus' present position. Where's Jesus right now? And what's he been doing for the past 2,000, 2,000 years? Well, you notice the psalm opens with David uh, reporting a conversation that he overheard. And the conversation went like this. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, during David's life, he had, a, a, he had, had some conversations with God, one of the few biblical authors, one of the few biblical personages that, that had conversations with God. And in the covenant that God made with David, God said that David would be among the greatest of all people in human history. God promised that David would have a descendant who would rule over an eternal kingdom. That's an incredible promise. How would you like it if God said, I promise you, your daughter will become the president of the United States. You'd think that's amazing. How would you like it if God promised you your son will become the secretary general of the United Nations? That'd be very cool. God promises David that his ancestor will become the Messiah of the world and that that ancestor would be God. It was a stunning Stunning promise. So Psalm 110, uh, God seems to be speaking to David again. But it's not a direct conversation. David is overhearing a heavenly conversation. The original word for say in verse 1 means that there was an oracle. Like this is a, an authoritative heavenly pronouncement. And David is overhearing this conversation taking place in the heavens. An authoritative conversation taking place in the heavens, and I want to read the verse again with the flavor of the original. It would go like this. I am, that would be God the Father, looking at it from our New Testament st standpoint going back, 
said to my Adonai, my Lord, that would be Jesus, sit at my right hand until you are completely victorious and your rule is complete. An amazing statement. Now let's think about the characters in the conversation. The first character in the conversation is God the Father, who's revealed himself as I am. I want to remind you that that word was pronounced probably Yahweh in the ancient world, but they never uttered those, those consonants, Yahweh. That was, it was too reverent for them, for them to do that. So they would use the word Lord. But the word Yahweh refers to God as the, as the awesome, majestic God who is over all, above all, in all, and through all. So he's way out there, but also as the God who is very near, the God who pragmatically gives us what we need in the moment for life. So he's totally transcendent, but he's very near to us as well. That's what that name Yahweh meant. God was revealing himself as the awesome, majestic, infinite one, and the one who comes forward to be, to be very, very near and very close. Literally, we could say, God says, I am who I am for you, for you. So that's the first person in the conversation, the great I am. The second person in the conversation is King David of Israel. David is the human king, and David is the one who overhears this conversation. Now, have you overheard a conversation ever? Ever overheard a conversation? You don't have to raise your hands, but have you ever put your ear toward a door and overheard a conversation in the wall on the other side? Ever done that? Or don't raise your hand on this. Have you ever, when your teenage son or daughter's on the phone, lifted up the phone to, to see what they were saying on the other side? You ever done that? I did that one time uh, when I was growing up. I, uh, my, dad was a, my dad loved to sail, and he would sail in the Chicago-Milwaukee race and the Chicago-Mackinac race because he wanted to learn how to sail big boats because he wanted to take our family on vacations where we were sailing big boats. And I really wanted to sail with my dad, but I couldn't do it because those races required uh, you, know, you to be old. And I was a teenager. I was a teenager. So one day I overhear my mom and dad talking and saying, Let, let's take the family on a sailing vacation to the Virgin Islands. I overheard that conversation. And I was so fired up about that. So Christmas morning, my dad announced this, but I already knew. You know, so I, I, I was excited, but I, I, was, I pretended I was excited like I didn't know. David is overhearing a conversation, an intimate conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And imagine how David is, is thinking as he's listening to this conversation. He's blown away by getting insight into the reality behind, behind the universe. The third person in the conversation is Jesus, the Messiah. Now, of course, that's not in Psalm 110. Jesus has, has not come yet. But this is written about Jesus, the Messiah, who would, who would come. And this person is the mysterious Lord. Whoever he thinks, David thinks this person might be, he knows he's somebody great because David declares this person to be greater than him. 
David calls him Lord. So here's David, the, the greatest king on planet Earth, the king that God is going to work in and through. And David calls this greatest king on planet Earth somebody else his Lord. We know exactly who this is. David didn't at the time, but, but we know who this is. He's none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus applies this to himself. Mark 12, 35, Jesus is in the lion's den, so to speak, of persecution on the Temple Mount. And everybody's coming at him with anger and frustration. And, and uh, here's what Mark 12, 35 says. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, in other words, inspired by God, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself, himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Jesus is applying Psalm 110 verse 1 to himself and using that to get those religious people who knew the Bible to try to understand exactly exactly who, who he was. So then God the Father issues an invitation. And in the, the invitation is sit at my right hand. Now we, we see a couple of things about the present position of Jesus. Sitting was always the sign of authority. If you're a judge, you sit on the bench. In the old ancient world, great leaders would sit in the city gates and by sitting, they were in places of authority. So, so he's to sit at the Father's right. That means he has authority. Now, Jesus said that in Matthew 20. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He has all authority. So that means that Jesus is the one spiritual ruler over the entire universe who is greater than all other spiritual rulers. He's better than... Buddha, better than Joseph Smith, better than Muhammad, better than all of the religious leaders who came before and after. He is the person who is solely and uniquely in authority over all things. He is sitting. And that means Jesus is ruling over a spiritual kingdom right now. We'll talk more about that in just a second. How does Jesus rule over planet Earth? How does he do that? Well, one of the ways he rules is through his invisible kingdom. You remember what, what, Colossians, what Paul says in Colossians? He delivered you from the domain of darkness, and he transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been transferred into a realm, and you live and operate in that realm. I've said this a number of times, that there is an invisible spiritual realm around you as a believer. And in that realm, you have access to power. You have access to power. And you are living and operating in that realm as a follower of Christ. Well, Jesus rules through you as you walk in the Holy Spirit in that realm. He rules through you as you show kindness to people, as you give, as you're generous as you cause ministry to happen through the way that you serve and love people and tell them about Christ. That's one way Jesus rules. Jesus also rules through his sovereign work in the affairs of world history. 
Now, I, I have no idea how this works out, but I know that what the Bible says. The Bible says Jesus allows some leaders to be lifted up. He allows other leaders to be dethroned. How he manages to do all of that, I don't know. But all of human history is under the sovereign rule of Jesus, and that's mysterious. We don't understand how that works. Jesus also rules through his church. He also rules through his church. Wherever his church exists around the world, Jesus rules. Sometimes that rule is very quiet, organic, and behind the scenes. Nevertheless, Jesus rules. I'll give you some examples. One example, two examples right here in our church. I will tell you that Celebrate Recovery is a place where God's powerful work is amazing to me as a pastor. Because I've said this before, I'll sit in the front row with Cindy and somebody will share their testimony and I will say, thank you for starting Celebrate Recovery. Thank you, Lord, for the transformative impact of Celebrate Recovery. Jesus is ruling through his church as people are changed, shifted, and transformed through a Christ-centered recovery program. I would say the same thing happens in our healing prayer program. It's not really a program, it's a ministry. But over the past six years, people have come to us with a variety of things, physical, emotional, spiritual, and they want healing. They want healing prayer for those things. And we have four people who, who have prepared to pray for the person coming in. We pray for the person who comes for about 40 to 45 minutes, sometimes an hour. And then when the person leaves, we pray for them after we left. And there's a lot of concentrated prayer during that time. And we have seen some enormous breakthroughs as a result of those healing prayer experience. That's an example of Jesus ruling through his church and causing supernatural things to take place as a result of the body of Christ doing what it, what it should do. Now, let me, let me go back to the, to the conversation. You ask, when did this conversation take place? So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand as I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. When, when did that happen? Well, probably the time that it happened was at the resurrection. Here's David writing this hundreds of years before Christ, but he's writing it prophetically about what would happen at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think we know this because of Acts 2, 33 through 35. Here, here's Peter on the Temple Mount preaching before the thousands of people saying, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received the, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured this out to you. You are seeing and hearing this. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 verse 1 was written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ to refer to an event that took place in heaven at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Incredible. So, so imagine what would have taken place. Jesus ascends bodily from the Mount of Olives up into the skies. He's received into a cloud. He transports himself to heaven. He receives from the Father the name that is above every other name. God the Father, according to 
Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, hands Jesus a kingdom so that Jesus is now the king. And the Father says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until your enemies are defeated. So Jesus is, is seated in power now. And what's really cool is that that is a statement of fact and it's also a prediction about your future. This reveals something really astonishing. We, we discover in verse 1 that there's an in-between time in world history. The time that he's seated and the time that his enemies are his footstool are two different events. There's a gap between those, period, those periods. We are living in that gap. That gap has lasted for 2,000 years, but we're living in the gap. We're living in Middle Earth, so to speak. Anytime I can get a little Lord of the Rings you know, theme kind of put in there, I, I, I want to do that. But we're living in Middle Earth between 33 AD and the time Jesus returns. It's the Middle Period. It's Middle Earth. And during Middle Earth, living in the time between times, we, we should ask the question, okay, is Jesus really winning? Is he, is he really winning? Because it doesn't seem like he is. It says that he will at the end. It doesn't seem like he is right now. In what sense could you say he is winning? The news media makes it seem as if the global rejection of Jesus is growing. That's in part because bad news, bad news sells. Moreover, all over the world, it seems like persecution is on the rise. We see that especially in China most recently, where the uh, premier of China is specifically and emphatically trying to repress the expansion of the Christian faith. Very worried about that. There are more, more members, more Christians than there are members of the Communist Party. At least that was true a couple years ago. We hear stories about that pagan religions are on the rise in our country. I read, read one this week about the rise of occultism in many different venues, from college campuses and, and so on. Uh, so you ask the question, okay, in, in what sense is, is, Jesus, is Jesus winning? Well, here's how he's winning. The Christian faith is dramatically expanding even in times of repression. It's expanding in the global south. Africa, for instance, India, South Korea, Parts of, of Russia, certainly expanding in China. There's certain pockets in our country where, in college campuses where students are passionately pursuing Jesus Christ. These days, it seems like you don't hear news about that. So all you get is the bad news and they go, oh, it's not, it's not doing well. God's kingdom is expanding powerfully. We were just with our son who lives and work, works in, in Africa. And, you know, it's tough, tough place to advance the cause of Christ. And yet he showed Cindy and I some of the things they're doing that are just astonishing, where they're able to get open doors with people who are way far away from Christ. But there's, there's movements even in the Muslim world these days so in this in-between times, it seems as if things are going poorly for the king who's on the throne. In reality, the kingdom of God is alive and well and powerful and expanding. And one day, here's the promise, his enemies 
will be his footstool. Okay, back in the ancient world, you know, if, if, you, if you were defeated, you were not immediately killed. The, the, the reigning king would put his foot on your neck and then declare in front of your people that this king was, was vanquished and the new king had won. This is a figure of speech where Jesus is saying, I'm going to win. Well, God the Father is actually saying that about Jesus, that he is, he is going to win. So in this middle period, what do we see in this, in this middle period? Well, what we see is more and more people who are willing to share the gospel overseas. We see more and more people who are willing to develop small house churches under repressive governments. We see the Bible being translated into more and more languages. It's amazing to think that within the lifetime of most of us here, the Bible is going to be in 90% of the languages spoken around the world. There are more and more Christian movements around the world who are showing forth the gospel of Christ through service. So uh, here's, the, here's the most amazing thing that I see. Here's Craig Keener's book. I've showed this to you probably a dozen times over the past six or seven years. I always go back to this book because he has documented all of these miraculous things that have taken place around the world connected with the advance of the Christian faith organically around the world. And um, Jim Garlow wrote a, a follow-up book to that. What I find amazing is that in the most repressive parts of the world, God seems to be giving Muslims, for instance, dreams and visions about Jesus. God seems to be working powerfully among the ruling elite where some of them will say, I, I, I need something deeper, I need something better. So that within the UN, for instance, there are genuine followers of Christ who are trying to be salt and light in the UN. In the Chinese government, for instance, there are genuine followers of Christ who are trying to be salt and light within the Chinese government. In many corporations around our country, there are genuine followers of Christ who are trying to be salt and light within their, their corporate entity. The pressure's on, and yet the kingdom continues to expand. Okay, so that's, that's Jesus in verse 1. Now, let's speed it up. And let's look at Jesus' present work. All right, what is Jesus doing today to minister to you? We, we're going from the big stage of world history down, down to your life. What is he doing to minister to you? Well, Jesus functions as your king and your priest, meaning he forgives your sins and he leads a movement. Back to the text. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Let me, let, let's just dig into that for a moment. Kings and priests were always two separate functions in Israel, except in David. David was a king and a priest together, but normally they were, they were separate. Think about the king part first. God the Father is extending his rule over the whole earth during this in-between period, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Now, that's going to be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ, but it is starting to be fulfilled 
right now. It's starting to be fulfilled right now. And hopefully, it's starting to be fulfilled in your life. Jesus is at the, is at the right hand of the Father. He is king of the universe. He's your king. He's your king. And to live in Jesus' kingdom realm means that from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night, you have the sense that Jesus is by your side, that he's next to you. You have the sense that the Holy Spirit is inside you. You have the sense that God the Father loves you. you to walk in Jesus' kingdom presence means that you cultivate the sense that the presence of God is all around you. Now, I will tell you, that is a spiritual discipline that's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do. It was hard for me to do for many years. I still have to work at it. But to cultivate that, that sense is, is to notice when God is answering prayer and say thank you. To cultivate that sense is to notice the good things that have taken place in your life and to say, God, I, I want to I flow with that. You know, I think it's very easy to pray. God answers prayers. We're sort of, we sort of take it for granted, like, okay, that could have been coincidence, but it could have been answered prayer. I don't know. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not sure. And not boldly say, that was answered prayer right there. God, thank you for that answered prayer. You are active and involved in my life. Thank you for that. That's what it means to live under Jesus' lordship as king. When it says, the Lord sends forth from Zion, again, ultimately that's fulfilled at the second coming of Christ, but that is, that is starting to be fulfilled in your life right now, where, where figuratively Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, working in your life, being king, wanting to rule and reign in your life, wanting to pour out supernatural things in your life. And when you recognize those things, that is deeply honoring to the Father who loves you and to the Son who rules, who rules over you. That brings forth, I think, an important principle. And the principle is, even when things get bad, those who are operating under the kingdom authority of Jesus ramp up their commitment. Let me remind you of a, a guy from, who died in the 1980s. This is Chet Bitterman, who was uh, part of Wycliffe Bible Translators. He was in, he was in Columbia. He was in Columbia, and uh, he was persecuted and killed. And <clears throat> they, Wycliffe issued a message to the missionaries. Anybody who wants to go home can go home. Nobody went home. And when they advertised for Chet Bitterman's position, they get 200 applicants. They get 200 applicants. The idea, if, if I'm operating under the kingdom authority of Jesus Christ and I get persecuted, all right, I'm ramping up courage. I'm ramping up grit because I want to be where the king is. And the king's on the move. The king wins. I, that, that, that's, where I, that's where I want to be. So then <clears throat> I want you to notice in verse 3 how Jesus empowers that volunteer ministry. They're not just volunteering on their own. They're volunteering as members of the body of Christ. In the day of your power and holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. What a great figure of speech. The womb of the morning. Ultimately, that applies to the church because the womb of the morning is that place that gives birth to a new work. And the church gives birth to a new work. When Jesus comes back, he gives birth to a new work. Again, the church is the womb. It's the, 
It's that place where that new work is birthed. And what he's, what he's saying is that the thing that gives us power to the Jesus movement because he's king is, is the church. He's king. He rules. Now the priest part of it. The priest part of it. We see Jesus as king. Now we see Jesus as priest. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You, 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 everybody needs a priest. Not somebody with a, a white collar on. But everybody needs somebody who will represent them before the Father. Because all of us come into this world broken. We all have a sense that this world is bent and scarred because we see the suffering and the pain. And the hope of the human heart is that there might be some solution to this dilemma of suffering and heartache and pain. It's the cry of every world religion. It's the cry even of atheists. Reading recently about the hope of atheists, they might find transcendence, not outside themselves, but in themselves. That's, that's the cry of our heart. We, we want somebody who will right the wrongs and break what's bent in our culture. So Jesus steps on the scene of world history, and he becomes our priest. He represents us before the Father. Once he becomes your high priest in dying for your sins, he continues to be your high priest by interceding for your needs. So you've got a king who rules over you. You've got a priest who is constantly working with you, trying to bring you to a place where you recognize that you have been called into a fundamentally new place where you're walking, in, walking in, in victory. And the cool thing about Jesus is he's not like one of those temporary priests in the Old Testament. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes from Genesis 14. Melchizedek was a king priest in Jerusalem. And what God is, what the writer of Hebrews is, and what the writer of the Psalms is saying is, is you know what, Jesus, you, you're, you're not a temporary priest. You're a permanent priest. You're, you're, our, you're our high priest. He solves our problem with sin, and he leads us on the way. Now we move to the future, Jesus' future victory. Jesus will execute final justice on the earth. I don't know if you, I don't know if you read this. New York Times said that the uh, word of the year in 2018 was the word justice. That word was saw a 74% spike in the number of times it was looked up. Now, Many times it was looked up as a hyphenated word, economic justice, criminal justice, food justice, environmental justice, and so on. It was a hyphenated word. But justice was the top word of 2018. We all want justice, right? I mean, we see a world that is evil. We want to see the evils dealt with. Ideally, we, we want that to happen. People are, are thinking about how do, we, how do we right the wrongs in this world? Well, ultimately, justice is Jesus-centered. He's the one that gets to determine what justice is. He's the one that gets to determine how to right the wrongs of the world. The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you. He will strike down many kings when his anger erupts. He will punish the nations and fill their lands with corpses. He will shatter the heads of the whole earth. Those are hard words. 
Like, those are really hard words. What the psalm writer is doing is he's saying, Jesus will bring ultimate and final justice to the world. He will right the wrongs that we see happening around us. And it will be Jesus-centered. And nobody will say, that's unfair. But we will say, you were the just one. You were the righteous one. And you have righted the wrongs of the world. Final verse. But he himself, referring to Jesus, will be refreshed from brooks along the way. He will be victorious. Here's what I love about this. This takes us right back to the very beginning, verse 1. Remember how I said there's a middle period? There's a middle period? Jesus, in that, that middle period, that middle period, and at the end, is refreshed. He's not worried. He's not worried about what's going on in the world. Everything is going along the way he knew it would. He's not worried. He's not worried. He's not worried about what's happening in your life. He's sovereign over the affairs of heaven and earth, and he wants you to live under his kingdom authority. Now, let me give, give you several short takeaways. Aslan is on the move. You remember how the, Mr. Beaver said in the Chronicles of Narnia that Aslan was on the move. Jesus is on the move. And the main idea of this, of this, of this psalm is simply this. Jesus is our king and our priest. He sets us free from guilt and shame, and he brings us into a place of power. He's your king. He wants you to live in, in, in his kingdom authority. He's your priest. He wants you to live in that, in that power. Okay, some takeaways. First takeaway, fall in love with Jesus. The whole point of Psalm 110, verse, verse 1, and, and the rest of the psalm is that we would see the majesty and the glory of the one who lies in the manger, that we would see him for who he is and, and fall in love with him. He's a good leader. He's a good shepherd. He's a good leader for your life. He's a good Lord for you. You can trust him. Walk in his supernatural power. Walk in his presence. Second takeaway is to reject the fear that so easily creeps into our lives. I don't know how many of you from time to time get driven by fear. I do. I do. And when I look at the Christmas story, I see that there's a predominant theme of fear. These four people are told to fear not. Zechariah, Luke 1.12. Mary, Luke 1.30. Joseph, Matthew 1.20. The shepherds, Luke 2.10. These four people are very different people. We're talking young, old, men, women, rich, poor. Didn't matter what worldly assets they had or didn't have, they were struggling with fear. And in every case, the angel says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And I think the important thing for us is to, is to remember that the king who sits on the throne is guiding your life. And you can trust him. You can trust him with the things that bring you fear. And the final takeaway, see yourself as an overcomer. The king who sits on the throne, the king who sits on the throne is going to take you up so that you can be with him and you will reign with him forever. You, by nature, are an overcomer. Okay, so you endure some some defeats in this world. We all do. Life's hard. 
life's tough. But we can see ourselves as those who overcome. So as we, um, as we continue to worship, um, we wanted to have time to worship at the end. I want you to see yourself as one who overcomes in Christ's power and in Christ's name. Let's sing with joy and passion because of how we have this ability to overcome as, as those seated on the throne with Christ. Let's, let's stand and worship.